Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Last time on HI101, we spent a lot of time trying to establish what exactly alchemy is and what the early alchemists were trying to achieve. This time, we'll come a bit closer to a traditional history narrative as we follow alchemy back into the European Middle Ages, but I'll be honest, it's still going to sound a little out there at times. There's enough intertwined concepts in this episode that even more than usual, I'd strongly suggest listening to part one before this one if you haven't already. But uh, with that in mind, let's begin. I'm here on HI101 with Kevin Miller. Hey. And we've been talking alchemy. We have been. We kind of did a lot of very non-historical talking about alchemy actually in the last, or in the first half of this one. It's a big concept to get your head around and I look forward to moving forward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it is big, but it's also so important. Like I, I I don't think I realized when I was setting out on this topic just how much stuff it permeated. Like uh-huh. it's it's weird how much, you know, how many how many things it has its fingers in. Like just medicine, science, religion, philosophy, you name it. A yeah. little bit of alchemy in there. No, I, I had to take a minute to just let it all soak in. Yeah, <laughs> and, and expand yeah. my mind. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we'll try and make it a little bit more like traditional HI one one this time around. We're probably gonna fail. I'll be straight with you on that one, but we'll give it a shot. Should be a fun one. So when we left off last time, the first Arabic alchemic texts were being translated into Latin primarily because that was the main language of scholars in Europe at the time. Yes. And it was kind of a it was kind of a big deal. It's not that odd that they would have been translating Arabic texts into Latin at this point in time. There was a pretty big push in Spain to kind of drive out the Muslim Moors from the from the country, and right. this led to a lot of intercultural kind of mingling and a lot of interest in in uh, these other cultures that they were coming up against. Just as a reminder, what time period we're we looking at here? We're looking at like the eleven hundreds here, okay. um, the the twelfth century CE. And you know, I talked a lot about the Arabic cultures in the in the Middle Ages last time, kind of kind of almost as though they just sort of happened upon you know Greek culture and and Egyptian culture. I should specify like that is part of a, a bigger political thing that's happening there, specifically like the early Muslim invasions where shortly after the the founding of Islam, you know, Arabic tribes flooded out of the Arabic peninsula and took over most of Northern Africa. Mm -hmm. And and that that push had some severe, you know, cultural impacts on the the area, but also brought them into much closer contact with the Byzantine Empire because they were spreading north as well as west. Um, And that's where that kind of milieu comes in both taking over these areas that were traditionally seats of uh, alchemic uh, knowledge and 
sort of coming into uh, military contact with bastions of, of Greek uh, knowledge that was left over after the fall of the Western Roman Empire. Yeah, you're just trying to have a cozy little empire and there goes the neighborhood. <laughs> Rowdy neighbors moving in. <laughs> basically, basically. But yeah, they, they spread across all of North Africa and up into Spain. So it's it's quite extensive. And this, uh, this translation comes during this period of pushback by um, Europeans into Spain trying to they call it the Reconquista, to reconquer Spain. Mm-hmm. Um, and anytime you have that level of uh, volatility, yes, there's a lot of sort of tensions involved, but there's also a lot of cross-cultural uh, knowledge happening. Almost despite their intentions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's yeah, it's a little bit inevitable. It's a it's a function of the the pressures that are being put on them, right? Yeah. But in a lot of other ways, 12th century Europe was really primed for a resurgence of alchemy as a philosophy. During this time, there was a lot of, you know, not only this con- uh, the, this contact with uh, Islam, but also there were a lot of what were known as, as heresies that were really flourishing at this point in time. Groups like the Cathars or the Albigensians that you've heard me talk about in other topics right. were really kind of coming into their own at this point in time. And the Catholic Church has kind of gone from like, hey, you guys do you as long as you're Catholic to, okay, guys, seriously, this is getting out of hand. And some of the philosophies that these groups were espousing are very clearly, if not explicitly alchemical philosophies, then certainly very closely compatible with alchemical wisdom. Right, which you went into detail in our last segment saying, you know, as soon as you have this this core concept of dualism yeah. butting up against a monotheistic juggernaut, yeah. <laughs> like Catholicism, yeah. uh, there's going to be friction. Yeah, and and so, you know, the Cathars and the, the Albigensians, uh, all of these groups are, are dualists. They believe that there is a spiritual world and then a corrupt physical world, which is just straight alchemy right there. Some of these groups were, as, were, were so extreme in these beliefs that they would go as far as forbidding any of their members to have children because they saw that as a cruel act of imprisoning a spirit in the physical world, which is, you know, within their framework, a very noble thing. And in terms of the longevity of a philosophy, a really self-limiting wow. uh, action, because it tends to kill off the group pretty quick. Yep. You know, there were other groups that would get around that by like designating certain people were allowed to have children and certain weren't. And it gets kind of cultish sounding. And you can understand why all of this was really yeah. uncomfortable I mean, for Europeans. Already sounding pretty cultish, but as soon oh, as sure. as soon as it's like, hey, you can have kids, and yeah, you can have kids, but as long as it's with her, and yeah, uh, no, you're you're one you're one charismatic leader away from like a, a straight up Jonestown situation. Oh yes. The other thing that was really important in terms of Europe's acceptance of alchemy going forward was the introduction of what's known as scholasticism. And scholasticism is sort of a precursor to the university system in in Europe. But the original purpose of scholasticism as an educational system isn't necessarily purely academic, uh, as we would think of it. Rather, it's closer to what would be known as apologetics now, which is specifically philosophies and developments of ideas that are crafted around sort of reconciling seemingly irreconcilable things about religion, if that makes sense. So there's a lot of the whole, you know, can God move a rock, you know, make a rock so big that even he can't move it. Like there's a lot of these really classic, um, you've probably heard before, like how many angels can fit on the head of a pin. That's like a, a classic, like scholastic question. And as a scholar, which is where that word comes from, you were expected to develop the, uh, the skill set to answer questions like that, but with a sort of well-reasoned construction behind your answer. Okay, so maybe then not so much having the answer to every giant question, but training yourself to think in a certain way. 
Yeah, and, and specifically in a way that allows you to resolve seeming contradictions within a larger knowledge set, which is kind of perfect when you're looking at something like alchemy, where there's a lot of stuff that doesn't necessarily make sense, but you do have a cohesive belief set that you're trying to support with these these very tangible, real-world results that you're getting. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the, the purpose of scholasticism, which comes out of monasteries, right? Like, this isn't a, a, a secular activity at all. It just happens to be where academia flourishes during the Middle Ages because the church was really the only organization big enough to fund anything like academia. Right. These are the educated people, the people who can read and write. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But it, it happens to be very carefully tailored towards, you know, this, this ability to uh, resolve contradiction. And while that's originally for... Um, religious contradiction, that's going to serve them really well when they get introduced to these alchemical ideas that contain contradictions. Mm-hmm. They have a very specialized skill set that allows them to take the, take those and go, no, this is fine, actually, yeah. because... Think very abstractly mm-hmm. and and work well in a framework where they're comfortable knowing, you know, 1% of all the things that they hope to know someday. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, scholasticism is built on dialectics, right? Like conversations between two people really in a lot of ways modeled off the sort of uh, Platonic uh, dialects, right? I was going right? to say the, the Socratic dialogue. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the idea of whether or not that's, you know, how, how directly that derives from from Socrates is uh, questionable. I mean, if it if it did, it, it's probably many steps removed. Yeah, I was going to say, I drew a line. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, it seems like there's a connection there. Yeah, and I mean, there's there's a bit of hindsight as 2020 and oh, all of sure, that, yeah. but... The, the point is that when you read these sort of scholastic resolutions, they don't necessarily automatically, very obviously give up the places at which logical leaps are being made. They do seem very convincing, like they're presented very convincingly. There are obviously, you know, as we would understand them now, logical gaps, but they're not just like out there on display. They're, they're very tricky. They're very well hidden. And that's really what scholasticism is designed to do. There's this explosion of thinkers that are often well-known, like really well-known in other fields today that um, you've probably heard of that in many cases did more work as alchemists than they did in these fields that they're well-known for. Right. And that's that's going to be a running theme for us basically for this entire awesome. uh, part is is these people who, like you, you will have heard of them. I'm, I'm <laughs> positive. Um, the first one is a maybe for me. His, his name was Albertus Magnus. Okay. And this guy was an influential author. He was also, uh, like, I mean, he worked on uh, proto-encyclopedias, basically. Like, yeah, he was I was trying gonna to say, I know that name. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and he was also uh, uh, heavily involved in, in alchemy. Uh, you get Roger Bacon, who wrote dozens of books. Um, right. He's the first European to make gunpowder, uh, supposedly. I mean, it was probably someone else. That's, that's going to be, we talked about it last time. That's a running theme of alchemy. Yeah. We're going to say so-and-so important person that you've heard of is the first one to do that. Probably not. Probably somebody else just tacked their this this famous name onto it yeah because it lends a clout but according to legend he's the first one to synthesize gunpowder in europe in europe okay. um, yeah oh yeah no they, there was no question that it came from china long okay. before this just want to make that clear <laughs> nope that's absolutely fair bacon's work on alchemy is interesting because he's the first one to have identified that he was pretty sure that the version of alchemy that was come coming from these books in arabic was incomplete and he's right in a lot of ways, because sure. one of the things that we talked about last time, if you'll remember, is that men working in the Islamic world, like specifically like uh, Jabir, weren't as concerned with sort of the hermetic philosophy behind all of it, although that did play a part. 
there was a lot more of the sort of physical science behind it that they were trying to right. physically create these uh, substances, uh, specifically chasing the alchemy or the, the philosopher's stone, uh, specifically working in trying to create artificial life and and some of this sort of connection to the heavens or uh, you know communication with angels and things like that were not as emphasized in yeah in, enough so that you referred to him as the father of chemistry as i recall he, he's one of the people that was given that that moniker and and has some there's there's some valid arguments to be made oh, for, for that. sure yeah. and the state of sort of scientific and philosophical academia at this point in time is in a really interesting state in europe because they know who people like plato and aristotle and socrates are right they've heard of them but only because over the centuries, their works were translated from Greek into Arabic mm -hmm. and then commented on or expanded on by Arabic authors. Okay. And then uh, during the 12th century and during this Reconquista, these Arabic works were being translated into Latin. Interesting. Um, so we're like a number of steps removed, right? Mm -hmm. And they're kind of reading about these guys and they're reading the parts of Plato and Aristotle that the arabic scholars saw fit to include in their own works and then it's gone through a couple of different languages and some nuances lost this classic and google translate telephone a little bit yeah. yeah and and so you know these people are talking about platonic ideals but they've never actually read plato right uh not in its entirety and not in its original language and there's a lot of scholars at this point in time and a lot of alchemists at this point in time who start to kind of feel like maybe we're not getting the full picture here Doing something properly at all <laughs> yeah does, something doesn't seem right here Thomas Aquinas, maybe you heard of him? Yep, maybe you heard of him. One of the most influential theologians that ever lived. He's uh, he's fairly well known. Probably an alchemist, probably did quite a bit of work on alchemy, actually. And this is something that we're going to start seeing more and more, is this slow sort of incorporation of alchemy into Christendom in, in a way that is compatible with Christianity. And it's going to take some tweaks. And part of the reason that that's okay is this missing original source material uh, and is this missing dualism that, that, that goes along with it. Because these Arabic alchemists mm -hmm. took all of this sort of dualist ideas and ran them through the filter of, of Islam, which, yes, it allows for things like communion with spirits. I mean, that's that's very uh, that's very compatible with, uh, with Islam. Right but left behind things like the, the the strict dualist or strict um theist interpretations of hermes works because that wasn't compatible with their faiths okay so so kind of over these centuries and these language translations and so on it became more palatable to a monotheistic society mm -hmm. okay these muslim scholars played a, an essential role in that it's a little watered down <laughs> yeah it is and and as i said they kind of recognize that but at the same time it allowed for like wider permeation of alchemy in general so was there any sort of division then like among alchemists at this point then like where you had someone in one part of the world believing one thing and someone in the arabic world believing something completely different at this point Arabic alchemy has declined somewhat um, by by the 12th century. Sort of openness to uh, scientific advancement has decreased quite a bit compared to what we were looking at in like the eighth or ninth centuries. Okay, so there isn't as much new work happening at that point, and there are those who are still, you know, reading uh, Jabir, but not necessarily adding to his work. And because he had been such a tour de force, a lot of people sort of saw him as the final word on alchemy. Right. That and, uh, as I think we mentioned last time, there was a bit of a backlash in society against alchemy and, and how well it actually did fit in with Islam. Whether or not 
you know, despite the the attempts that were made to fit it in a little bit better to that culture and to that religion, okay, whether or not it was actually truly compatible. I see. And and so it certainly uh, discouraged the practice of alchemy in the Islamic world. Were there still people practicing? Of course, there's always going to be people still practicing. But if anything, I think that, you know, this is a very long way around to it. But if anything, I think that means that, uh, yeah, you're right. There's going to be quite a, ver- a variety of beliefs within alchemists. But because there's um, no centralized way for everyone to get together and exactly. discuss the differences between, hey, here's what I think. And, you know. Yeah, there's no yearly convention. Yeah. Here. There's no governing body. <laughs> yeah, there's no, you know, Reddit forum that they can go on. <laughs> basically, basically, all you get is kind of often poorly translated uh, manuscripts crossing borders every once in a yeah, while. Yeah, where you could just as easily say, ah, he doesn't know what he's talking about, or ah, he's, you know, 300 years ago or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, it's important to remember, and, and it's it's sometimes easy to forget in modern society, but we're still talking about a, a period in time where suppression of knowledge is relatively easy. Yep. If there's a book and you burn it, that book is gone. There aren't <laughs> a million copies of that book. <laughs> There might have been ten if it's really if it's doing really, well. Yeah, popular. People had enough. to, yeah, people had to copy that stuff out by hand. Yeah. Like a, a book was, I mean, not not even just in the amount of labor that goes into it, but the transience so, of it mm-hmm. uh, was very valuable. So yeah, it's it, it becomes very easy to suppress knowledge like this if you don't want it around. So that drives people to secrecy, and secrecy drives people to uh, diaspora in, in in certain manners. So would someone practicing in France believe the same thing as somebody practicing in? Uh, Egypt, absolutely not. But you know, it's it's not because there's some sort of a uh, th- no one got together for a giant debate over it. Yeah, but I mean that makes you think, like you know, the work that Javier did, mm-hmm. obviously influential. If it's something that we can still refer to now, yeah. In fact, it was so influential that in the 13th century, uh, an author comes along that we refer to as pseudo Jaber, spelt G-E-B-E-R, which is a very obviously Latin perversion of Javier. Mm-hmm. You know, I always thought pseudo meant like kind of like or like akin to. It turns out that the Latin root is actually false, which I didn't realize. False Jaber. Yep. Pseudo Jaber, I mean, people have talked about who it might have been. The the main contender at this point is a, a man named Paul of Taranto, who uh, oversaw the publication of a lot of pseudo Jaber's works, which, you know. I love that name. <laughs> pseudo jammer yeah but i mean this is another clear obvious instance of somebody just like cribbing another alchemist's name for just the recognition is, is he calling himself that well no he published under the name jaber oh okay we call him we no. call him pseudo jaber now to distinguish <laughs> that's what i want to know I'm like wow it takes a certain kind of person i think yeah <laughs> it's very we are anonymous Knock off, <laughs> um yeah so the thing that's really important to understand about pseudo Jaber is as soon as you say that, like false Jaber thing, yeah. your inclination, everyone's inclination, mine included, is mm-hmm. to think that, oh, this guy sucks at alchemy. Yeah, discredited it immediately. And that's absolutely not the case. That is not how we should think about this man, because he was the most complete and most clear alchemical author that had come along in Europe since before the fall of the Roman Empire. Wow. Now... A lot of what Jaber did was taking previous works and collecting them and clarifying them, uh, writing commentary on Arabic translations, things like that, and presenting it as new uh, material. But I mean, I don't want to give the impression that that's a bad thing. Sometimes having a clear 
uh, universal guide is a is a good thing to have. Yeah, that this sounds is, super helpful. Well, pseudo Jaber is like the the Julia Child of alchemy. Like yeah. she didn't invent French cooking, but everybody's got her book because it, it works really well. Yeah, because she made it accessible. Exactly, and that's exactly what Jaber did for alchemy. Now, keep in mind. A lot of the stuff is still sort of cloaked in this semi-mystic uh, allegorical language, partially because that's the tradition of alchemy and partially because some of the stuff that, uh, that Jaber is talking about doesn't actually exist. Right. Right. Like it's not a real thing. It's a it's a it's a hypothetical. It's a conceptual thing that they're talking about. But like we talked about in the first half of this uh, this topic. Mm-hmm you need to have those hypothetical next steps to make the entire System. philosophy work. Yeah. There were new additions though in these in these works, some new um chemical experiments basically or chemical equations that hadn't been written down before Jaber that we know about. Okay. Um so I mean he did add to the corpus as well. And compared to what we worked with in the the Greek world, the the Egyptian Greek world, mm-hmm. he he might as well have just written it out step by step in terms of like clarity still coded but it's actual recognizable steps to actual recognizable chemical reactions well that's handy to have yeah it is and i mean a lot of that is the influence of those those uh arabic alchemists who were focused on making actual you know creating real reactions pseudo jaber basically i don't want to say single-handed necessarily because any movement like this is such a, a gestalt thing but there's certainly a, a close relation to the publication of his work and the legitimacy of alchemy in the Christian world, because by the end of the 13th century, it's it's well established as part of Christian society. Anyone, uh, even if you have no idea what exactly alchemy is, right. um, you would know, you would have heard the word alchemist, you would have associations with the term alchemy in terms of likely uh, the the making gold part rather okay. than the the more esoteric uh, aspects of it. Yeah, one of these famous little facts that you might know about the secret society. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and it's not, yeah. And and in terms of its secrecy, it was less about not telling anyone that you were an alchemist. Right. It was more about telling people what you did as an alchemist. Yeah, like everyone knows the Masons exist. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you might even know a dude who is a Mason, yeah. but he's not necessarily going to go ahead and... Tell you everything that they discussed. Yeah. Although some of them might. It's yeah, gotten a little bit... <laughs> it's gotten a little there, bit there looser. A <laughs> but you're also seeing a lot of modifications to allow alchemy to fit into society as well as it did. We already talked about some of the loss of the more esoteric aspects and, and a focus on the physical aspects of, of alchemy, right? So right. there's a lot of it is basically seen as people who are on one hand, maybe working in the same realm as blacksmiths and other, and other smiths like okay. metallurgists. Yep. And on the other hand, maybe have too much time on their hands and are looking for a get rich quick scheme. Okay. Just to clarify or maybe ask a question yeah. or even your opinion, is this sort of progression the result of either just kind of the expansion of scientific knowledge at the time that we tend to get more into the actual chemistry and metallurgy of this topic rather mm. than the spiritual side of things? Or is it just because of that clash of spiritual ideas that they kind of got left by the wayside? Much more the second one, especially because we're going to, in a, in a little while, we're going to see a resurgence of that esoteric side of alchemy. Okay. Um, so that's, I, I can... I Would can, you say the second one kind of leads to the first one? <laughs> um, I, I think so, at least in this time period. Yeah. Um, I, I think the uh, the unavailability of the esoteric aspects of alchemy force a focus on it. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, b- because because alchemists saw what they were doing as the totality of alchemy. They didn't necessarily, yeah. other than people on the, the level of, of Roger Bacon, who are kind of 
next level with a lot of this stuff right don't necessarily see there being anything necessarily missing okay i see so they they see the creation like the purification the, the physical purification aspect of alchemy yeah. as being the main goal of yes it. it's still the first step yeah. yeah that and what spiritual aspects still do exist have become uh christianized in a lot of ways so oh, okay. you know rather than uh the idea of, of a, a corruption of spirit being seen in this dualist perspective where physicality is the corruption of spirit right corruption of spirit is seen in the context of original sin within within christianity so it's this idea of the purification of oneself being a path to salvation purging sin reconciliation exactly okay yeah um which fits in well yep. enough for their purposes <laughs> that's catholicism the purification of matter is seen in the context of something we've also talked about in other uh topics which is the great chain of being right like this idea that everything is on a, a scale of goodness mm -hmm. and it's very easy to categorize just about anything and listen gold is just better than lead so you're, you're just moving it along the chain and that makes it better so it, it fits in fairly neatly into the medieval worldview in that sense okay I, I think I think you're right that those missing esoteric bits help it fit into that worldview much yeah, more easily. Yeah, I, I could see how that bit would be like lost in translation and suddenly fit in a lot better mm -hmm. in the Western society at the time. Yeah, ultimately, alchemy for the initiated is seen as a road to reunification with God, right. with you know, with godliness, which in and of itself could technically be seen as heretical because you're kind of taking salvation into your own hands, but. Yeah, that's that's a level of distinction that isn't necessary for us to get into. No, I don't here. think so. But you know, those those small tweaks make it much more palatable to medieval Christians. Okay. In the 14th century, you start seeing a, a fairly strong backlash against uh, specifically false alchemists. This has been misinterpreted as backlash against all alchemists at certain points in the past. But okay. really, what happens is people have no issue necessarily with. You know, the guys who are actually turning lead into gold, that's fine. What they have an issue with is the people who are doing things like passing off fool's gold as real gold. I was or say, I'm sure uh, some pirates getting thrown in. Right yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or or um, the, there were ways of taking base metals and, um, you know, basically electroplating them with gold right. or uh, uh, changing, you know, applying acids that change the coloring so it looks like gold, things like that. Yeah. And then passing off these less than precious metals as gold and silver. Charlatanism. And... If you remember from the last part, a lot of uh, alchemists saw that as sort of a just the barest starting point of trying to figure out actual transmutation. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean there aren't going to be people in society who stop right there and realize this can make me very, very rich. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, electroplating is it's a it's a fascinating thing that you can do. Yeah, it's it's still has some scientific basis like mm -hmm. it's it's cool, but yeah. it's definitely not gold. No, it's definitely not gold. <laughs> and a lot of the work that's happening you know, functionally in terms of progress, uh, as I mentioned earlier, is in the realm of, of metallurgy and you're working with different ores and you're figuring out how to mix different metals together and to yeah. make uh, yeah, different alloys. And amalgams and, mm -hmm. right. and, and, and that's the stuff that people start getting really concerned about because up until now, gold is gold is gold. Right. And, you know, you bite the coin and all of that stuff, like the, you know, like the cowboy movies and, uh, and that's how you figure out what gold is. Yep. Now it's not so simple because now we've figured out things that look like gold and act like gold but are not gold mm -hmm. and they don't stand they don't stand up to all of the tests just enough that you might think that it's gold and pay the value of gold yeah sure and if you're you know a random somebody on the street and you bite a coin and you're like okay mm -hmm. <laughs> that's the one test i know yeah basically not only is it a matter of like 
this being a, a better business bureau type <laughs> consumer protection thing. It's also it's also dangerous on a political level because it's potentially economically destabilizing. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, currency is only as good as the confidence in it. And if you lose confidence in gold, mm-hmm. what do you have left to run your economy with? Yeah. At this point, nothing. Yeah, credit hasn't been invented yet. <laughs> they, they do not have fiat currencies. No. <laughs> um, so in 1317, the Pope uh, explicitly forbids false promises of transmutation. doesn't say anything about actual transmutation. Okay. But uh, it's, it's yeah, it's no good to falsely promise transmutation. But, but again, this isn't, this isn't a condemnation of alchemy itself. I mean, in England, to get around this, they made, uh, they made transmutation illegal without a license. <laughs> <laughs> and so you had to apply for an alchemy license to actually do transmutation. Oh, man. And in order to do that, you had to prove that you could make gold. I'm picturing this like Roman DMV. <laughs> I mean, you know, like, I mean, it's it's more of a, yeah, it, it's more of a like go into like an audience with the king type thing because this yeah, is a I know, I know. But like still, you're I'm applying something for... as mundane as the DMV. <laughs> It's it's yeah it's a cross between that and like uh, an application for like an academic grant right oh, okay. like you have to like make a proposal yeah, write an essay <laughs> here's how I'm gonna do it and some of these were issued they they issued licenses for transmutation which is just absolutely crazy to me yeah someone got away with something there the sort of charlatan aspect of of false alchemists definitely got into popular culture around this time though uh, you have authors as diverse as chaucer all the way to dante talking about alchemists as being basically liars and swindlers um you know dante can he committed them to one of the circles of hell and i was gonna say i could see dante being super into this idea <laughs> yeah well dante was an interesting guy i mean the inferno is a is a whole different topic for another time but he put just about anyone and everyone in hell in that oh, book yeah no no yeah he saw dualism from another perspective i think oh absolutely <laughs> Shows up in Pierce Plowman, which is like one of the most famous poems of the time. It's like a long form uh, English uh, poem from the 13th century. I think I've heard of it, yeah. Yeah, it's it's one of the like two things that comes out of this century in English literature, the other being Chaucer. Noted. Uh, yeah, it's it's a big deal. And, and both Chaucer and Pierce Plowman talk about alchemy and not in a good light. Yeah. And this does kind of have a bit of an, uh, uh, an effect on uh, true scare quotes, practitioners of alchemy, alchemy yeah. being kind of driven underground a little bit. Right. I mean, there may be like an official distinction being made between true and false alchemists here, but the the average person on the street is going to trust them about as far as they can throw them. Well, sure. And I mean, you know, even if you are a true alchemist and you believe it deep down in your heart, I imagine it's very difficult to prove if called mm-hmm. to the mat. Yeah. The, uh, the philosophies that are being incorporated into alchemy around this time to kind of lend themselves towards both secrecy and a bit of a withdrawal from society mm-hmm. sort of the tradition of the the hermit we sort of associate with like monastic life especially right but that goes back to roman times and stoicism i don't know if you know anything about stoicism in particular a but, little bit yeah um there's a lot of stoicism that got wrapped up either explicitly or implicitly into uh into alchemy the idea i mean stoicism could i, I could spend 20 minutes on talking about stoicism but the the basic ideas are hey, listen, the world isn't perfect and it's not on you to make it perfect, but you have things you can control and things you can't control. Do the best you can with what you have. Basically. Mm -hmm. And one of the main things that you can control is yourself and your own actions and your own values. And so try your best to be a good person. Try to live your life in as sort of rational a way as possible. Um, (laughs) You know, uh, emotions happen, but try and take that into account when making decisions, mm-hmm. you know, stuff along those lines. And and the most extreme versions of this end up being, 
yeah, complete withdrawal from society. Aesthetics. And, yeah, exactly, exactly. But there are there are aspects of Stoicism that were uh, tied into alchemy in the the very like the Ptolemaic Egypt days. But you know when it was one of the most famous or uh, uh, popular philosophies in the Roman Empire. Right. But Stoicism had always kind of stuck around through monasticism and kind of got reint- uh, reintegrated in this time. Uh, the idea of withdrawing from earthly things, opening you up to uh, a better understanding of living a simple life to attain spiritual enlightenment. Yeah, yeah, that's maybe a better way of putting it than I'm trying to struggling to try to say. <laughs> between the between the general social uh, outlook towards alchemists and a natural inclination towards asceticism, yeah, a lot of the people who are actually practicing cloak it in more and more secrecy and they are more and more withdrawn from uh, from society. You also get issues of specifically the types of materials they're working with, namely lead and mercury, both being heavy metals. Dangerous stuff. Of the of the heavy metal poisoning yep. fame. Maybe um, you've heard of it. Maybe you've heard of it. And a lot of the experiments that are being done in terms of, you know, remember the, the end goal of alchemy is uh, reduction and purification. And one of the easiest ways to separate out materials and purify materials is boiling them. Right. And you know what's really, really good at getting you very, very crazy is inhaling a bunch of mercury vapor. Uh-huh. <laughs> and this isn't every alchemist that ever lived. There's a lot of people who worked with uh, mercury very successfully without any terrible side effects. But a lot of the people who got in deep, um, there there were enough of them that suffered the symptoms of heavy metal poisoning, which mm-hmm. are essentially madness, um, that alchemists gained a reputation for madness. This is all just like a massive recipe for yeah pr disaster yeah well just, I, i'm just... picturing like the, the the sort of common thought of the day being like oh yeah those alchemists are the ones who live out in the wilderness and they, you know they're they're mad always doing their concoctions and making their potions and <laughs> basically wizards basically wizards and and no one was really sure and, and i mean this is this is a time where uh the concern with you know possession by demons is becoming more and more yep. prevalent and uh you know where exactly are alchemists getting their power anyways because the popular conception of power is well it comes from two places god or the devil and these people do not seem godly they do not seem terribly godly and um one of the classic symptoms of possession by demons is speaking in tongues and one of the things that tends to happen with heavy metal poisoning is kind of nonsensical babbling nerve damage you know like it's it's just a lot of stuff that kind of piles up to create this this popular conception of the alchemist as as you're just a very unsavory person. You 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 tuck your kids behind your robes when you see the alchemist coming. Yeah, don't go in that shack near in the woods. <laughs> yeah, and remember, they've kind of lost their way in terms of the purpose behind their their great work. What it is exactly uh, that was originally set out by uh, Hermes Trismegistus uh, as the the ultimate goal of alchemy, this sort of union of spirit and and matter. I mean, there's a little bit of it in there, but it's a glimmer. It's not the original conception. Right, right, and. What you end up with is um, someone who's often pointed to as kind of the quintessential medieval uh, alchemist, Nicholas Flamel. Now, to be clear from the outset, this is another name that probably a lot of stuff was attributed to Flamel that uh, he never said and never did and all of that. Not not even just the obvious stuff like he created the Philosopher's Stone yeah. and lived forever, but even, even some of the writings that are attributed to Flamel on alchemy uh, might not have actually been him. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Nicholas Flamel, uh, 1340 through 1418, supposedly, or supposedly, or much longer, depending on which children's fiction you read. 
Yeah, I mean, J.K. Rowling absolutely cribbed Nicholas Flamel from, you know, real history. Apparently he might be in one of the new movies. Hmm. Interesting. I did not know that. Yeah, I have nothing else to say on that. <laughs> <laughs> the, thing, the thing about Nicholas Flamel that really sums up um, the philosophical state of, of alchemy for me is this idea of Prisca Theologia. And the idea of Prisca Theologia it's not even just alchemy, but it's just the Middle Ages in general. Prisca Theologia is this idea that there was an original perfect theology. There was an original perfect knowledge and order to things that existed at the beginning of time. And ever since then, everything is decaying and everything that we get is a worse version of what came before. And we always know less than we did before. Okay. And knowledge is always being lost. And uh, that is just the that is the progression of history. Hmm. And it's metaphysical entropy kind of and it seems really odd to us who kind of think of you know in our society we tend to think of history as being this constant progression in a positive manner right we like to think that <laughs> I, i'm just talking in in, in general in yeah. the broadest of strokes yes. the thing is these are people who know that the roman that the roman empire once existed and it does no more and they are living in the height of the Middle Ages, yeah. and things sure have not been getting better for them. It's Doesn't been getting worse like and worse. It, huh? <laughs> there is knowledge that they know existed in the world that is now gone. There seems to be more and more strife, strife, straight up evil. The idea of of the the um, intentionality of evil in the world at this point in in the European conception of it is. Um, much more active and much more dangerous. Um, it's it's a super old one, but you should check out the the witchcraft episode sometime just to get a bit of an idea of what I'm talking about right, here. Yeah. You know, you go through you go from a what sometimes get gets called the dark ages, where people are kind of comfortable with this idea of a spiritual world existing beside their own, and, and this isn't a problem, to this real fear of the other side, and this real concern about the agency of the other side, and 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 the. Uh, uh, the activities of demons to actively uh, harm and control and destroy and all of this. Mm -hmm. And you throw the alchemist from down the street into this mix and, yeah. oh boy. Suddenly it's very real. Suddenly it's very real. And so for a man like Nicholas Flamel, he's going like, of course there's things missing from alchemy um, and we're never going to get it back because that's just how the world is. Yeah. Today is the most knowledge we will ever have again. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, someday I will die and more will be gone. And, yep. and it's not just me. Someday everyone dies and a piece of knowledge goes with them and it will never be retrieved again. Mm -hmm. All we are is dust in the wind. The Middle Ages was a grim time, man. I was going to say, this is a very Middle Age idea, actually. <laughs> it is. It is. And I mean, again, we're talking in the, the broadest of concepts. And I don't mean to get the or give the impression that, you know, sometimes when we talk about that broad concept of the middle ages it feels like everyone's just everyone like, just takes a dump on <laughs> well also just that like the average person is just like the most nihilistic oh you know yeah i'm gonna be a peasant now i'll be a peasant till the day i die and yeah. every day is just another yeah what's 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 the point yeah I'm gonna dye my hair black yeah <laughs> <laughs> um and, and that's take my dad's horse down to the, <laughs> down to the neighbor's farm it's just it's just it's not like that. People still lived their lives. They were fine. It's not that. It's just that, um, you know, you ask academics about the the vector of history, and this is sort of the, the general response that you might get, again, in the most broad terms, but even then they're going to hedge on all of that stuff, right? Right. It's just, you know, we can't give a good idea of what these things are like without just stripping it of all detail completely. Of course. But Nicholas Flamel mainly spent his life trying to understand what came before and trying to 
trying to fight against that entropy of knowledge. Trying right? to claw something back. Trying to preserve as much as he could. That's that's the way that they saw their their work in in uh, alchemy at this point in time. I was going to say it actually sounds like a very alchemical idea, where if you're sort of if you sort of observe the natural state of the universe is every day we lose something else. Mm-hmm. Being able to make one day, like mm. being being able to look forward to a better tomorrow, yeah, is is a way of adding to purify the world. Like that's that's very much in that line of thinking. I can I can get behind that. Yeah, that's that's actually really insightful. That's an interesting way of looking at it. I hadn't considered that, but I, I think you're right. Yeah, it's almost like a temporal <laughs> purification. Yeah, in a way, in a way, that's true. It's like today sucks, make tomorrow better. Yeah. That being said. There, there is also this guarding of knowledge that goes into it. Again, I, I keep coming back to this, but one of the most well-known things about alchemy, all of his stuff was just full of codes and full of metaphors and full of traps even. Like they put things in there that if you didn't know enough about alchemy to avoid, you know, this thing, I it would see. throw you off the scent. And so if you knew just enough to be dangerous, but not enough to know what you were actually doing, yeah. it would protect this knowledge from people who didn't know. Yeah, anyone who knows better knows not to mix these two things together oops you've poisoned yourself basically yeah and i mean the, the stakes are more usually just the, the experimental fail but yeah yeah in, in a way okay, maybe i'm being dramatic <laughs> there's not a lot more to say about flamel other than this sort of pop culture conception of him having succeeded in creating the philosopher's stone and in, in, in successfully creating the elixir of life of, of living forever but a lot of that reputation comes later in stories about him he's just a famous uh, alchemist of this time yeah actually i mean going by those sort of popular fiction stories like specifically the you know the harry potter sort of idea that you know he discovered and invented the philosopher's stone and he and his wife lived for 700 years mm-hmm. like you can kind of understand now why that's such a tragic idea for someone who thinks that the world is getting worse every single day mm-hmm. and then something miraculous happens oh. at least in terms of of, of european scholars uh which is that the Byzantine Empire is destroyed and Constantinople falls to the Ottomans, yes. okay. which isn't so hot for them. Uh-huh. But what it does when, when Constantinople falls in, in 1453, it drives out all of these Byzantine scholars who have lived their lives in the comparatively golden city. Yeah, uh, scatters them. It, 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 most of them are actually picked up by Italian patrons yep. and taken back into Italy. And... Now, we they, discussed this before. Yeah, we have discussed this quite quite extensively before um, talking about the Renaissance. These these patrons are talking to them, and 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 these these scholars are saying, "What are you like? What are you talking about? You guys are working off of Latin translations of Arabic translations of Greek works. Mm-hmm. Like, I I have a copy of the Republic like in my bag. Like, do you mm-hmm. want to see it in the original Greek? I got yeah. the whole thing. Hey, a printing press was invented." Well, there, there is that too. <laughs> you want a copy? <laughs> all, all of that happens at the exact same time. All of these scholars suddenly gain access to the original Greek works. And this knowledge that Roger Bacon theorized was missing suddenly becomes available to all European scholars, not just alchemists, right. but for our purposes, especially alchemists. They finally get a handle on all this stuff. I was going to say, now is Flamel still alive during all this? Or is he spinning in his grave? He died a little too early for that. He died in around 1418. That's unfortunate. Yeah, but I mean, he he, he lived at exactly the right time to be the last of the old style alchemists. That's exactly right. And and that, in a way, is why he was so famous, um, or at least a certain part of it. He was the first, he was one of the last famous uh, alchemists to live before this injection of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And it's not 
just the great thinkers. It's not just Homer. It's not just the three philosophers that we think of most often. It's not just Galen. It's not... In 1460, a man named Leonardo de Candia Pistoia finds a copy of the Hermetic works in oh. an abandoned monastery in the original Greek. Mm-hmm. This is... A gold mine. This makes the Dead Sea Scrolls look like chump change. Yeah. This is, a, like, I... You know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to compare it too closely, but in terms of like the the level of lost knowledge that is just presented there, whole cloth mm-hmm. for the taking, is unprecedented. It completely shatters that nihilistic uh, medieval worldview of everything is getting worse that we talked about. That gap is suddenly closed. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, does it bring them? Does it bring them back up to the same level overnight? Absolutely not. But you know, there's a there's a man named. Marsilio Ficino, who is actually under the patronage of uh, Cosimo de' Medici, translates Hermes. He's he's so intent on getting uh, Hermes translated that he sets aside the translation of Plato that he was working on wow. to do Hermes Trismegistus's full works. That's how important this knowledge is. It's a big is. one, yeah. <laughs> this is possibly... like since, since the moment that a book on alchemy was translated from from arabic this is by far the biggest moment to happen to european alchemy but like easily easily um this is knowledge that has been lost for over a thousand years Mm -hmm. just pops back into the sun fully formed and it's it's a a miracle to these men and it's going to completely change the way that they do alchemy that being said i think now is a, a good time to take a quick break we'll consider and come back and finally talk about probably all the alchemists that you're hoping to talk about i'm guessing oh gonna be good yeah we're back on hi 101 here with kevin miller yo and we've just dropped this bomb on uh, european alchemists of all greek knowledge i guess yep the game done changed game done changed they got access now those holes that they were talking about they just got filled yep the missing knowledge has been unmissed Hermes is back. Yep, don't call it a comeback. Electric Boogaloo. What, how many more memes can we do? Uh, guess who's <laughs> back? Back again. We're running dry. <laughs> um, and yeah, it, it had a, it had a it had a sizable impact on on alchemy. I don't think it needs to be repeated, but it got incorporated into the corpus of alchemical works so quickly that you know. There had already been an idea of how to do the great work mm-hmm. up until this time, like what the steps were, at least in theory. But now why they were doing the great work, like not not just what they thought, but like in, in the totality of the three pillars of uh, hermetic knowledge that right. we talked about, that all clicked into place, right? Yeah, this is this is the resurfacing of the philosophy behind the mm-hmm. behind the practice. Yeah. And you know, to to be fair to previous alchemists, they did have an idea of how to do the great work, specifically transforming lead into gold. They just didn't associate it with, they didn't associate it as directly with um, the the spiritual elevation that that hermetic knowledge would suggest. So, I mean, th- those steps of the the magnum opus were mm-hmm. th- there were four steps. They were uh, each related to a color, both of the uh, uh, the step that was happening and as related to the element that it was right. reproducing, as well as the bodily humor that it represented. Like there's all of this stuff tied back into each other, right? Yeah, so there are four things and here are their seven properties. Yeah. So the first step was uh, what was known as uh, 
negredo blackening um which was where you take what's known as the prima materia the 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 thing you start with the first material uh and you cook it until it blackens into this uniform matter Mm -hmm. then you uh go through albedo which is the whitening you kind of wash it away in a solvent and it uh, gets rid of all impurities and it leaves um that material in in two parts like you you separate it out into these two white parts then it goes through uh one half of it goes through what's known as uh citrinitas so yellowing Mm -hmm. in which this is probably like the the silver into gold type step is the idea of it okay but what it's also doing sort of philosophically is is creating two halves of one whole right and then the final step uh the rubido uh the reddening is combining those last two portions together and uh for alchemical symbolism redness symbolized completeness or or uh, achievement um and that reddening was the the union between these two polar opposites um you know again tying back into all of these dualist themes of spiritual physical male female you know light dark all any any two opposite things that you can think of probably somehow symbolically tied into this action and what you were left with was the Philosopher's Stone, which then could not only transform other elements into their most pure form, but also, you know, heal and and exalt and and all of that stuff. Right. Let's talk about a man who was born with the name Theophrastus Bombastus von Hohenheim. I have heard this name before, because you don't forget someone with the name Bombastus. Also known as Paracelsus. Yes. A lot of people would take on latin sounding names when they sort of advanced in academia because you know latin has such prestige in in sort of uh european culture i I was going to say back then but let's face it forever always although why he would give up a name like theophrastus bombastus von hohenheim i have no idea that was a misstep in my opinion mr bombastic hadn't been written yet (laughs) paracelsus lived 1493 through 1541 late enough to absolutely take advantage of this uh access to hermetic texts uh quick aside actually mm-hmm. uh so we had discussed previously that uh one of the reasons that alchemy was accepted fairly easily into western society was because over the translations over the centuries it had kind of been stripped of this heretical mm-hmm. philosophy associated with it now we've discovered that information again what's the what's the feeling well, this is where uh, scholasticism comes back into play, right? Okay. This, this, this sort of reconciliation of two seemingly contradictory ideas uh. into something that works quite well, actually. And it was believed by a, a great many people, uh, Dante included, actually, if you look at the Inferno. But he's he's not the only one. It was it was widely believed that these forefathers of knowledge in in philosophy and medicine and mathematics, all of this, were given this. Uh, what they call prior knowledge. Okay. Uh, it was a divine revelation. We actually talked about this with uh, with Hermes in the in the first part. Okay. Yes. Um, where these people, even though they weren't Christians, people of, of of this era graciously admitted that that wasn't necessarily their fault, seeing as they lived yeah. before the revelation of Christ. <laughs> of course not. How dare they? <laughs> um, well, I mean, that didn't give everyone a free pass. Let's put it that way. No, it didn't. And there are a lot of people who it's kind of like, well, okay, the entire weight of our understanding of the universe rests on this person who also happens to be by every account a heretic Mm -hmm. we need to deal with that the way you deal with it is by claiming that these people even though they weren't technically christians were given divine revelation by the christian god and therefore get a free pass 
into the common era. Um, That's convenient. Yeah. And so what that allows is for people to take the parts of their works that matter. Yep. That um, I like. <laughs> I, 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 for lack of a better word, a better way of putting it. And to take the parts that are clearly heretical and set them aside as saying, oh, well, they didn't know better. Yeah. Basically, they, they weren't being divinely revealed to that day. Yeah. Okay. And yes, it's contradictory. And yeah. yes, so is a lot of philosophical and theological stuff. It's, it's, it's very messy apologetic. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely is. And Hermes got the same uh, treatment. And yes, some of his ideas were... Uh, technically heretical but if you look at things like his doctrine of there being one original true creator right the the medieval christian uh, academic looks at that and goes he just didn't have the vocabulary to say god yeah jesus didn't confirm this yet <laughs> yeah exactly and he was trying to and yeah. that's what shows that he was being divinely revealed to um this is actually stronger proof than many of the thinkers that got a buy uh were able to provide but, okay so so was he kind of ap apologized into being considered a prophet then like retroactively yeah 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 he was being considered a prophet okay <laughs> um but he was he was given prophetic knowledge of of the the singularity of god wow because he specifically said so he just didn't correctly identify which god i guess and, I gotcha. and they were they were basically saying like i know what he's saying but he means this yeah if, if that makes enough sense. And I mean, never mind the fact that Hermes may have lived after uh, the foundation of Christianity and, you know, all of that stuff. Like, it's, it doesn't matter. The tradition says he lived contemporaneously, you know, with Socrates and things like that. Right. So it's just conveniently ignored. I guess not ignored. Explained away is maybe a better yeah. um, way of putting it. So, yeah, people are reading this stuff and they're identifying it as heretical, but they're also identifying it as extremely useful. Yeah. And that's at the end of the day, more important than the heresy of it all. Okay. Back to Paracelsus. Um, if you've ever heard his name before, it's probably in a medical context. He's considered one of the fathers of modern medicine and in a lot of ways is credited with, you know, most of the most of the uh, medical advances since basically Galen in yeah. the Roman Empire. They had gotten stuck in that rut of assuming that all good knowledge had come and gone and that we were kind of working with the scraps and that there were certain figures that were considered untouchable. If Galen says it was so, yeah, that's how medicine yeah, who is. Who are you to question Galen? Pliny the Elder says this, that's how medicine works. Pliny. Uh, Aristotle says that women have so many teeth and men have a different number of teeth. Well, that must be true. Yeah. Don't bother looking in that mouth. No, it's he reasoned it out, man. That's, I'm not making that one up. No, I know. It's, yep. The, oh, the dawn of empirical knowledge is going to be a shining light in the middle of this medical history is the best it, it absolutely is paracelsus was less interested in transmutation for transmutation's sake mm -hmm. which is very that that should be your first clue that he's of this like new generation of, of alchemists yeah. that's no longer his primary concern mm -hmm. no he saw alchemy as a way to heal he was you know he was a doctor he was a he was a swiss doctor and his goal was to to heal people to be fair, he wasn't—he was a doctor in the time where basically you just apprenticed with a doctor until you felt like you knew enough to call yourself a doctor. Correct, but yes. uh, it's not as though he went to a proper medical school or maybe even a, any medical school, from yeah. what we know. You're the only person in your village that can read. You're probably a doctor. You might be a doctor. <laughs> okay, Jeff Foxworthy. <laughs> oh, oh no! Is that what I did? But the flip side of that is, you know, there is always this sort of experimental undercurrent to alchemy, and what that meant was that 
Paracelsus was willing to reject some of the stuff that you know had been established knowledge for a thousand years right so we're talking like the humor system is still the most popular thing and sort of follows that doctrine of you know we've got the cold wet we've got the Mm -hmm. warm wet we've got the all of that stuff is still in place now paracelsus didn't actually believe that the humors were the source of health he injected a very very alchemical idea into the mix which was that the health of the body depends on a harmony between the body and the soul Mm -hmm. uh, and that most diseases are a result of spiritual misalignment, basically. He's not saying that the humors don't exist so much as that the humors are a reflection of this harmony between the spiritual and physical aspects of the self. Right. So he's not saying that a demon caused you to have back pain. No, and in fact, Galen was uh, one of the first people to ever suggest that uh, that diseases were entities onto themselves. Yes somewhat anticipating germ theory by many many centuries i've heard this you refer to them as like tiny bugs or something yeah and i mean he doesn't actually understand the concept of microorganisms but he comes presciently close to it Yeah, pretty close for Um, someone who doesn't understand microscopy yeah and so he's both dealing with uh, an alteration of the humorous theory so the humorous theory says when your humors are out of balance you get sick Mm -hmm. he's saying when your soul and body get out of alignment you get sick but he's also saying that there there are uh autonomous malevolent forces that can cause this misalignment a corruption and it's got nothing to do with you or your actions they are a, a separate entity that can create this tension so he was both ascribing these these tiny bugs mm-hmm. as autonomous beings physical mm-hmm. yep. and malevolent right so they were attacking both your body and your spirit exactly okay but i mean it's it's also going back to this hermetic ideal of uh theurgy right like this idea that you are able to communicate with and interact with yeah. uh, both good and evil spirits, right? Mm-hmm. And he's saying that maybe there are not necessarily demons in the traditional sense, but that there are physical forces that are capable of affecting our spiritual nature or our physical nature that may have something to do with this theory. In a detrimental way. <laughs> yeah. But the way that he decided to deal with this, because in his mind, he's basically creating medicine from scratch now since he's throwing Aristotle and Galen out with the bathwater. He turned to things like observation. He turned to testing different chemical compounds and their, uh, their effects on the body. What a nut job. (laughs) He uh, was especially fond of different minerals as, as cures for diseases. He hits a lot of stuff really close to the mark. <laughs> Good place but, to start. <laughs> but the reasoning behind that hitting close to the mark are nothing even remotely close to no. modern biology, right? And it that that's that's one of those things about a number of the proto-scientists that we're going to talk about in this section that we kind of go like, hey, yeah, it sounds like they got really close. And it's wild how several centuries ago they had these ideas that are really close to our current understanding. And it turns out that it's not because they were you know, they had a, a massive amount of foresight or that they were, uh, you know, gifted with this uh, imagination that, that allowed them to see further than other people. It's usually because there's something about alchemy that comes really close to reality intentionally or not. And yeah. this is one of those. There, there's something about how in the grand fullness of time and, you know, when you're willing to try anything, you come across a lot of these happy accidents without necessarily being able to explain why they work, just that they work. Mm-hmm, exactly. So you know tiny malevolent entities disrupting your body's you know balances and causing sickness and being able to counteract those with chemicals and minerals like yeah yeah, that's 
not technically true, but the things he was doing was working. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And well, and 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 if you were to simplify down modern medicine yeah. to extremely simplified words and terms, it would sound a lot like that. Yeah, if you're explaining it to a child. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah, that's 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 all I'm really getting at there. Uh, but at the same time, Paracelsus is absolutely a an alchemist first. Like, I, I mean, his his medicine is being informed by his work in alchemy, and while he was um, for the time fairly effective. I mean, sometimes horribly ineffective, but at least heading in the right direction for the first time in a thousand years. All of that work is affected by his understanding and his study of alchemy. I mean, mm -hmm. he was obsessed with the idea of astrology, of prophecy, of, of talismans, of using sort of uh, totems to ward off these these uh, spiritual entities causing uh, misalignment, right. which all plays into theurgy, right? As well as astronomy, like in, in the hermetic sense. Mm -hmm. Paracelsus also added to the corpus for uh, alchemy in, you know, for the first time in a long while, really, proposed uh, some big ideas that would kind of become really emblematic of, of uh, alchemy. Things like the Iliaster, the Prima Materia, the first thing that you start with in the yes. great work, yep. often gets identified as mercury, which is where you get all of these people boiling mercury, hoping that's the first great yeah, step. Trying to burn mercury and yeah. poisoning themselves immediately. <laughs> yeah, burning it down to the black, right? Like, yeah. definitely good for you. Also done with lead, but, you know, neither one's good. <laughs> Uh, he also proposed a conception of uh, the universal solvent, the alkahest, mm -hmm. and he, propo he proposed that the alkahest, and th this is the novel part, was the philosopher's stone itself. The philosopher's stone was the thing that could dissolve anything. Okay. And he kind of tweaked the idea of the universal solvent um, from the thing that anything could dissolve in mm -hmm. to an idea of the thing that could break anything down to its smallest constituent parts. Okay which is how you get around that sort of logical fallacy of anything absorbing anything or dissolving anything. Right. Um, so the idea being that uh, if you had a philosopher's stone, you would have to keep in a box of pure gold or pure lead because mm -hmm. that's the only thing it couldn't break down further. Well, not pure lead. What am I talking about? Yeah. Lead would be converted. <laughs> that's, that's uh, it would have to be the gold. Yeah. Um, whoops. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but in any case, that's, that's what could hold the philosopher's stone. Anything else would be broken down, including flesh, which is problematic, problematic, but that means that you're working with all gold materials. That's a lot of gold, but hey, if you have a philosopher's stone, that sorts itself out. Yeah. Put it in a box of anything. Suddenly it's a box of gold. He didn't care about the gold, though. I mean, I, I'm sure he did to some extent, but he also came from a fairly wealthy family and, and this uh, compulsion to help people. Yes. Um, you know, the, the alchemy informed the medicine, but the medicine also informed the alchemy. And he believed that the greatest work of alchemy was the creation of the panacea, mm -hmm. uh, the cure-all, basically. Yeah. The, the thing that could cure anything, the elixir of life, uh, whatever you want to call it. It's It's been proposed by other alchemists before this, but he claimed that that was the goal of it. And that was his focus? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, well, because it, as far as he was concerned, the body and spirit were already in harmony in ideal situations, in health, in okay. perfect health. Yes. The body and spirit are in harmony already. That has been achieved. So he's saying that by achieving the panacea, he's basically promoting spiritual exaltation mm -hmm. and, and because the, the better health you're in your body or your spirit are both elevated yeah and, and maintaining that harmony between yes. uh physical and spiritual which i imagine the panacea would be able to do flawlessly yeah exactly they're in perfect health exactly yeah so it's actually a really neat uh explanation to all of the different parts of of alchemy it's, it's it, really, it all kind of works out if you put it in that logic it's, it's really tight yeah which you know is probably why he came up with the the conception of health in that manner. I mean, that's that's what alchemy is, just 
all the way down, right? It's figuring out ways that this can fit together more neatly. Yeah. Many, many disparate ideas into into one philosophy. But yeah, I, I, I think if, if Flamel was the last of the old alchemists, yeah. Paracelsus is easily the, the first of the kind of new school. The problem with the new school of alchemists isn't that the philosophy comes back and becomes a little bit problematic, which it does mm. become problematic. I mean, this is a... This is an era in time where the church is dealing with the Reformation, and uh, boy, do they get upset about anything that seems even remotely deviant. Oh, yeah. That's not going to be its downfall. What's going to be its downfall is this promotion of an alchemical idea, experimentation, Mm -hmm. right? Um, We're not quite there yet, but in, in a lot of ways, I'd say Paracelsus is the pinnacle of the synthesis between alchemical philosophy and alchemical experimentation. Yeah. Uh, he's probably the last time this works out in a way that doesn't start uh, discrediting alchemy itself through its own methods. Yeah, this is the this is peak marriage of philosophy and practice. Exactly. Uh, that's, I mean, that's that's my assessment, but yeah, it, it, I, I think it's, it's fairly safe to say. That sounds reasonable. Let's take a quick side trip. Talk about John Dee. Do it. John Dee was... Uh, the court spy for Queen Elizabeth I. Okay. He was also her astrologer and uh, consultant uh, in spiritual matters. Yeah. It's quite the job. Really interesting. Also, uh, as astronomer in charge of the uh, very, very new Royal Navy, because his knowledge of astronomy lent itself to navigation. And also he kind of ran her espionage arm, and that seems close enough to an AVIS. left-hand man. (laughs) It's important to remember that the, you know, late uh 16th early 17th century the royal navy is a very new thing yeah uh britain has only just been becoming a, a naval power in fact it's basically john d who goes listen we need a navy or we're going to be a backwater nobody forever instead <laughs> something different happened <laughs> instead we went a real different way but this is also a guy who believed that there was a primordial uh universal language it is yeah. the language, according to him, it's the language that existed before the Tower of Babel. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. And if you could learn this language, if you could understand this language, then you could speak directly to angels. Yes. And they would be able to teach you all the alchemical secrets. Celestial. <laughs> yeah. And it's an interesting idea. And it's kind of one I'm surprised hasn't come up more in alchemy, especially since it's incorporation with Christianity. Mm-hmm. But he was he was big on the idea. It's not as though he invented it. It was just, it was, it was his main thing. It worked out super great for Babel, as I understand it. Yeah. You know, well, that is the problem. But that's also <laughs> why it needs to be, keep, uh, be uh, kept secret, right? Yeah. That's what happens when you give to the masses, not to the select few. True. Fair enough. And I bring him up mainly because Queen Elizabeth I had a court alchemist. Yeah. Like, I, I want to emphasize that that is the level of importance that alchemy has achieved in European uh, society at this point. I mean, any number of German princes had their own alchemists on staff. Um, some because they were interested in the academic uh, pursuits of it. Some of them because they wanted gold. And it became not just fashionable, but essential as the ruling class to employ alchemists i love when you hear something in real history that sounds like it's from a fantasy novel yeah it it absolutely does the problem is it absolutely opens them up to all sorts of charlatans and and fraudsters who are like oh yeah no i have the secrets of alchemy definitely yeah definitely give me a cushy job and a nice place to live and there were absolutely court alchemists who didn't know the first thing about alchemy um or i I shouldn't say that It, it wasn't hard to learn the basics it was this uh, esoteric guarded gnostic level of knowledge that was sort of much harder to get uh your hands on because 
most times you either had to be incredibly smart to figure it out mm-hmm. uh, or you had to be inducted by someone who already knew tricky stuff yeah i was gonna say you'd have to be at least incredibly smart to sort of navigate that political climate that too but it's possible to be politically savvy without necessarily being academically intelligent yes. yeah, yeah and uh there were certainly court alchemists that fit that description oh i'm sure there were so while alchemy in general had gotten a fairly bad reputation among the public i think it's also fair to say that in the higher classes it was also seen as not only worthy of attention but essential to stay like you know at the top um if you didn't have somebody who knew this stuff then you had opponents uh rivals enemies who did have access to this esoteric knowledge and might use it against you you need to have a foot in that door well and it's not just knowledge that could turn the tide of battle it's knowledge that could essentially or or potentially heal you of diseases or keep you alive for a long time or hey are your treasuries being depleted this guy can source you some gold or, you know, it's, it's all of those aspects of, of alchemy together make them a very useful tool for royalty. So, yeah, I, I mean, if anything, that just adds to the mystique of them and the untrustworthiness of them. Yeah, it is that concept of the left hand man. <laughs> yeah, and very much like in the shadows. Behind yeah, the exactly. It's the kind of guy who you don't necessarily want to have around, but they're pretty useful at doing that unsavory stuff. Mm hmm. In, uh, in 1599, um, so this is while Dee is actually still alive, there's a book published called The Twelve Keys of Basil Valentine. Valentine being a probably fictitious alchemist once again. Um, and it's a book that outlines step-by-step 12 steps, 12 keys to creating the Philosopher's Stone. Okay. Thing is, it's all encoded language, but in 1602, just a few years later, there's an edition of it released with these woodcut illustrations. Mm-hmm. And they're not clear. I'm not going to pretend that they're clear. They're very strange illustrations. Okay. But they're also just absolutely beautiful and fascinating. I'm going to see if I can bring one up for you here. Oh, sure. So I'll put a link in the show notes. But like, that's the, that's the first key. And if you look, you're going to see a lot of symbols that will look familiar. And you're going to see a lot of stuff that like, you can kind of maybe suss out. There's also a lot of weird stuff going on in there. There sure is. Do you want to maybe describe it very briefly for... Uh, okay, so we're looking at some sort of a field or pasture with a castle in the far background. Mm-hmm. Uh, what looks like an affluent lord and lady, possibly queen, mm-hmm. um, standing. He's carrying a scepter of some kind. She is carrying flowers, it looks like. Uh-huh. Uh, in the foreground, there is an old man with a scythe and what looks like it might be a very long forked tongue mm-hmm. <laughs> standing above what looks like a bowl with a flaming pearl in it. I think that might be an egg, actually. Uh, okay. And then on the uh, other side of the frame, we have a dog jumping over uh, what looks like a bowl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that also looks like it's on fire. That is a, a smelting pot. Okay. Yeah, it's... it's... Oh, and across the top says Prima Clavis. <laughs> yeah, well, first key. Yeah. This one doesn't show it, but often you'll see steps with the sun and the moon in them. Um, I thought it was in this one, but I, I, I misremembered. Uh, the symbol of Saturn shows up a lot. We oh, okay. noted earlier that... Uh, oh, oh the yeah, first... I wouldn't necessarily be able to pick those out even if I did see them. Yeah, the, the symbol of Saturn. Um, well, it's, it's just like the astrological symbol, right? Uh, you, you'd recognize it. You might not remember which planet it was. Exactly. But you'd know I, would, it was I wouldn't be able to pick it out necessarily. Yeah. The symbol of Saturn, Saturn being associated with lead, obviously. So all of this stuff that you described... It sounds bonkers. I get it. And 
I'm not going to pretend that I understand everything that's going on in this key. I am far more intelligent people than I have analyzed these to death. But, but the point is that there's a lot of stuff going on in here that has a lot of intentionality to it. Yeah. It is very clearly there for a reason. It reminds me very much of one of those like Dutch master paintings, like lady with dog and apple sort of idea. Sure, sure. But in this case, you know, there was the the egg and the fire. And egg yeah. and the fire means birth conception. It's a basilisk. Ah, okay. Right? And <laughs> I was going to real world, my bad. <laughs> yeah, no, what are you talking about? This is crazy town. <laughs> We're going for alchemical symbols here. But yeah, there, there are aspects of birth to that, right? And basilisk it is the... it's a chicken egg that is hatched by a frog, as yeah. I recall. <laughs> yeah. And you look at these drawings, and certain of them people have looked at and gone, okay, well, if this symbol means this, and you know, you interpret it in this way, this may be this chemical interaction, which actually makes a lot of sense. And okay. they've figured out a few of these. Other ones are like further down, like the later keys are probably uh, hypotheticals. They're, they're speculative reactions that are being encoded. Well, I'm trying to figure out what basilisk might mean in this sense. <laughs> Something I'm, that can transmute flesh to stone. Yeah, basically. It's, it's okay. change. It's, yeah. it's transformation. But again, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert in any of this. It's, it's, uh, it's wild stuff. And I only have so much time for this yeah, podcast for sure. to prepare. Yeah, I can't I'm get sure inducted I could stare into the, at that image for another 20 minutes. <laughs> I can't get inducted into any uh, esoteric uh, societies. Not yet. Not this week. Not this week. Well, maybe someday. Yeah. But these these guides, we're, we're pretty sure that Robert Boyle worked out of this specific book and, okay. and worked on reactions uh, with lead out of this book using these drawings to, to guide him. Mm-hmm. Like, it was widespread. Like, it was very, very popular. And it purported to like step by step like this is how you do it yeah the thing that this runs into along with people like paracelsus and and all of these learned people that are working on alchemy is reality i guess is is the shortest way to say it we start developing these ideas of empiricism Mm -hmm. and you know there's going to be key thinkers through the years that that work on empiricism that uh develop the idea some maybe even going a little bit too far when you get right down to it. I mean, you you go through, you know, Francis Bacon, who first, you know, is sometimes considered the father of of, uh, the scientific method, saying that, like, we can't take knowledge for granted. We need to uh, work work things back to uh, fundamental principles and then, you know, extrapolate from there. Uh, You get people like uh, Rene Descartes, who, Mm -hmm. you know, decides to take that to the you know, to the extreme of like, do I exist? Yeah, father of extreme causality. <laughs> well, yeah, but we're not even, he's not even the most extreme one out of yeah. all of these guys, right? That's the crazy part. But, um, you know, Descartes is also, he, he is on the extreme side of the sort of the rationalism or the logic side of things that everything must be through induction. Mm-hmm. You get uh, Newton in there who's basically saying like, uh, Descartes has a good fundamental when it comes to assumptions, but yeah. Bacon has a better idea in terms of observation yeah. being the, the building block of, of, of uh, knowledge. Mm-hmm. Then you get David Hume who just like, yeah, <laughs> I was never, I was never huge on philosophy. I wasn't I, either. I, I don't mind it, but there's, there's a couple of them that make me roll my eyes a little. David Hume was one of the ones that made me go like, I get what you're getting at, man, but come on. So he's, he's the one who's basically going just because, his, the fundamental idea is sound, which is just because something has always happened a certain way doesn't mean that it's going to continue to always happen that way. But That's it. he tends to take it to an extreme where he's going, I don't know if the sun's coming up tomorrow. Yep. It's like, well, technically, yeah, but empirically, don't worry about it, man. Mm-hmm. I think you the weather no network says 6.02 a.m. Like, 
we'll be fine. Yeah. No, I remember writing, like, I took one philosophy class in 12th grade, and my I'm writing an essay on what Descartes and Hume would have to say to each other about that sort of stuff. <laughs> that, nothing personal, man, but that essay sounds, like, insufferable. It was not fun. <laughs> a lot of this is a reaction to early modern thinkers who are, you know, they, they did get their hands on these Greek translations finally, and they went, hey... These guys made a lot of mistakes. Like, yeah. we can't we can't assume any of this is right. Adult men and women do have the same number of teeth. What is this? <laughs> I can see them. They're right there in your head. <laughs> hey, they're right there. We've been we've been missing it all along. Um, it's been a couple thousand years and no one's ever thought to count these teeth. <laughs> and and they start basically ignoring all of these old thinkers. And I a lot of that starts with Paracelsus, where he's going, I don't care what Galen said, I'm gonna check into this myself, right? Well sure, and and with results. <laughs> with positive results, with yeah. very good results, they found massive uh, uh mistakes. And you know, there was a good century there where it was kind of a dirty secret among doctors of like, yeah, we know Galen isn't quite right, but we're just gonna keep tech you know teaching him in its entirety in medical schools anyways because it's galen what else are we gonna do yeah, it's all very uh, nervously pulling at your collar yeah it's I, I can't imagine the sort of the atmosphere there where it's like you've got instructors teaching you galen and then taking you aside afterwards and being like yeah but seriously yeah, don't, don't do that thing don't, i just don't said. do that that doesn't work yeah that, that usually kills them yeah have you seen what Pliny suggested <laughs> <laughs> and and so there's this almost disdain that forms among academia for ancient thinkers where they go kind of why did we think these guys had all the answers they didn't know anything they're all dumb guys it goes super pro-modernist yeah a lot of what the enlightenment is about is why would we assume that anyone knows better than us yeah we've developed these systems of thought that allow us to distill knowledge in a better way than uh than people who came before us who are using sloppier methods well sure and i mean even if they figured out something what's to say that you can't too yeah exactly Exactly. Who died and made them boss of yeah, knowledge. Yeah, medicine forever. <laughs> and we start getting more and more people just kind of button up against this wall when it comes to alchemical knowledge. So we talked about Tycho Brahe last time you were here. Right. More an alchemist than anything else. Mm-hmm. We talked about him mainly in the in the context of his, his, his astronomical work, and that's how he's mainly known today. Mostly alchemy, mm-hmm. specifically focusing on astronomy, and, and so that holds up. But more on how the celestial sphere affects the physical world that Mm. was his concern that was why he was cataloging all those stars a lot of experiments that you'll get in chemistry at this point in time won't just measure things like temperature and barometric pressure it'll also measure the the position of the sun in the sky and the phase of the moon Hmm. and on one hand this was a we know nothing reaction to the rejection of old knowledge where i don't know what might affect this uh this chemical reaction Maybe maybe the moon phase does matter. And fair enough. Part of it, though, is still kind of holding out this hope that like maybe there is something mystical going on yeah, here. Just, just beyond the veil. <laughs> Robert Boyle, who we, we just briefly mentioned, mm-hmm. um, usually, again, one of the other people who is referred to as the founder of chemistry. Super smart guy. Like, I... That's that's the the really fascinating thing about this period for me. I mean, he lived 1627 to 1691, contemporaneous somewhat with uh, with Newton, Hooke, all of these sort yeah. of people we think of as fathers of science, and he did a lot of good scientific work. I mean, he was the first one to define an element as sort of the undecomposable building block of matter. That's that's how he stated it, and with obvious refinements, that's essentially the 
definition we still work with today. Right, yeah. Very, very modern refinements. Yes, absolutely. He's also one of the first people to distinguish between a mixture and a compound. Mm -hmm. Boyle's law for gases. Uh, It's it's the one that says that uh, if temperature remains constant, the pressure of a gas is uh, inverse to the volume of the container that it's in. This is all like really important grade 10 science yeah, stuff dynamics yeah yeah but he came across all of this stuff through alchemical work he was trying to transmute lead into gold he was trying to complete the magnum opus yeah he was chasing this higher esoteric truth in 1689 he was instrumental in the repeal of the ban on transmutation without a license he figured anyone should be able to yeah sure <laughs> <laughs> why not um these aren't seen as contradictions by these men right like this isn't these aren't two contradictory things now, at the same time, Boyle is the first person to distinguish between chemistry and alchemy. Right. He wrote a, a treatise in 1665 called um, Chemistry or Chemica that basically narrowed the definition for what chemistry was mm-hmm. to just the study of, of compounds, basically, and left the rest of it for, for alchemy. But that's the beginning of the end right there yeah, when you start the, separating yeah. out. Yeah, uh, separating out the study of the physical. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And... That separation won't get widespread acknowledgement for a few more decades. But again, it's only decades at this point. Yeah. We're, we're getting close. Petering out. Let's talk about Isaac Newton. Always. 1642 to 1727. We think of Newton as the first scientists in a lot of senses. That's not... Uh, a completely hyperbolic thing that is sometimes said about him. It's not the most accurate thing, but... Hyperbole has come into it. Yeah. Um, I mean, he was instrumental in the founding of the Royal Society, and, and this is the this is the era in which empirical experimentation really comes into its own, and he's at the forefront of all of that. You got the whole calculus thing, you got the whole Newton's laws things, you got the gravity thing, you got the optics. And I don't mean to diminish those accomplishments in the least. They are the foundation of modern science. But then... But if you take by just sheer number of pages written... Mm-hmm. The amount that Isaac Newton wrote on math and science mm-hmm. doesn't come even remotely close to the amount that he wrote on alchemy, yep. trying to understand alchemy, trying to get to the bottom of these these the, the core mystery of alchemy, um, the exaltation of the of the spiritual, the the refinement of the physical, all of that. And a lot of the stuff that we think of as being very again, just like Paracelsus, the stuff that seems forward thinking is often linked to his alchemical work. He believed in dualism. He was, a, he was a famous theist, actually, uh, to the point where he faced uh, ecumenical trials over his religious beliefs. Huh. Now, to be a scientist and a theist at this point in time isn't necessarily unusual. It also was not something he necessarily admitted widely. But the, this is the time, this is the era in which the the deist, hands-off creator uh, concept really comes into its own, largely through hermetic knowledge. Right. Um, it had a it had a massive impact on that con- that concept of the universe, but at the same time he was also interested in Rosicrucianism, which was uh, the the Rosicrucians were uh, this secret society that had existed for some time and sort of came to light in the 17th century. They'll eventually kind of get rolled into the Masons, as most secret societies inevitably do, <laughs> but you know had a little bit more impact on the on the Freemasons than some other ones do in terms of. Um, degrees of mystery and things like that. Okay. The core of Rosicrucianism before its incorporation into Freemasonry was basically the belief in literal communication with angels. So, ah. uh, theurgy. 
basically yeah. and and so of course he was interested in that as a as a as an alchemist yeah is this still going back to like that universal language mm-hmm. okay yeah, there, there was definitely that in involved with it but yeah you, you look at you look at newton's work and i mean even even the calculus was basically created as an afterthought because he was getting annoyed with hook yeah um, it was basically done to settle a bet as i recall yeah he was having trouble deriving orbits yeah, basically predicting so orbits <laughs> created calculus and there it was yeah hey i figured out the question you asked me and i just invented calculus as a way to do that <laughs> yeah yeah no he was more he was more interested in the question itself and uh, yeah how'd you figure that out oh this whole thing the method yeah oh hey i just invented this new system of mathematics but you also get things like the refraction of light a lot of his optical uh, experiments related to the, the spectrum right yeah his interest in the spectrum and his beliefs about how the spectrum worked are rooted in corpuscular theory i don't know if you remember that from jabir but corpuscles were this fundamental building block yes, right that's right and he believed that was the and it's it's really close to atomic theory in a yeah, lot of ways but he believed that light was composed of these same corpuscles but that they could be converted and split apart by prisms okay. using using optics he also believed that light was made up of fundamental building blocks it, he referred to as corpuscles but are essentially photons when he describes their behavior. Oh, okay. I was going to say that. Don't know if that's technically true, but if he's talking about like spectronomy, mm-hmm. I don't think that that was him. No, but but he's talking about photons. Ba- basically, basically his conception of the way that the spectrum works and its composition into white light mm-hmm. is that various corpuscles have their own color, their own wavelength, and then okay. combined together they create the visible spectrum. Got it. So he's saying that when he's creating the visible spectrum, mm-hmm. the spectrum yeah. of colors, he's doing so by splitting this combination of corpuscles into its component corpuscles. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And so he's talking about photonic wavelengths. Yes. Which is really interesting. But not in again in any sense that we would conceive of it now. It's just it happens to line up in this really prescient way yeah interestingly enough those alchemical theories and his theories by extent uh, by extension are what lead us to a better understanding of the actual physical phenomenon same thing with gravity i mean the idea of action at a distance mm-hmm. is hermetic in nature through and through okay as above so below right yeah there are things that are happening in the stars that directly and immediately mm-hmm. affect what is happening here and now the Newtonian conception of gravity is that it's exactly the same, just on a different scale. Well, is is that it acts over a distance with nothing in between, yep. and that it happens instantaneously. Yeah. And for Newtonian physics purposes, that's true of gravity. It's not technically true of gravity. Gravity moves at the speed of light, yeah. but that's that's if for we're a few few centuries away from yeah, that. For his conception, it's the same thing. <laughs> and for most applications of. Yep. Uh, computation of gravity uh you you just assume that it's happening instantaneously yeah, well we'll leave it to einstein to get to that next step <laughs> yeah well he's he's a little outside of our purview today <laughs> yeah thank true. goodness but yeah the idea of of heavenly bodies having a, a direct physical effect on each other over a distance mm-hmm. with nothing in between or you know some conception of ether or what have you in between but without a physical connection yeah that is an alchemical idea that's a that's a very hermetic idea well and the as above so below it's kind of brought together in this unifying theory too right that the same math that governs the movement of planets around the sun also governs an apple falling out of your tree well and look at the tides the moon moves across the sky and yeah. the tides change and it's a very direct yeah you know example of as above. you can see it happen yeah it's it's a direct example of as above so below and it's also a direct example of gravity at work. So yeah, there's there's a lot of his stuff that kind of 
you see in a bit of a different light when you realize where he's coming from. Yeah, but there's a lot of that trademark in it if you know to look for it. Mm -hmm. A lot of his documents weren't actually released until after his death, so people didn't really realize how deep in he was. <laughs> but he was deep it's in. That's secrecy. Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I saw a quote somewhere. I, I cannot for the life of me remember who actually said this, um, but they referred to Newton as not the first of the scientists, but the last of the, uh, the magicians. Interesting. He destroyed his own discipline in a lot of senses by founding the Royal Society, by laying out a more structured conception of uh, the scientific method, mm -hmm. by emphasizing empiric data over unifying philosophy. Um, those are all things that, despite being an alchemist himself, yeah. are antithetical to alchemy. Yeah, you can say the trademarks, but he like defined a lot of things so clearly it didn't leave a lot of room for that philosophy. He even said something along the lines of, and, and this is a paraphrase, but he basically warned against unified theories. He basically said, don't ever fall under the, the delusion, as easy as it might be, yeah. that you figured it all out. Because there will always be somebody who comes along later and adds to the body of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Which isn't very alchemical sounding. No. And it's very scientific sounding. It's very scientific sounding. Shoulders of giants, etc. And yeah, exactly. But the problem is, at the same time, it, it is kind of alchemical in that there's this idea that there's a great work ahead of us and we don't know all the steps yet. We can theorize what they might be, but we don't have the answers. Well, sure. And I mean, in that regard, I mean, like if we're trying to make the sort of comparison between alchemy and science, as maybe he would have, mm. you know, the shoulders of giants thing sort of works, right? Yeah, absolutely. The idea is that someone has to get that first step, but once they do, then everyone else can start working on the second step. In Newton, you really see the tension that is going to ultimately end alchemy as a serious pursuit. I, I can see that, yeah. Even though it didn't necessarily seem to cause him a terrible amount of personal strife, mm -hmm. which is interesting because from all accounts, he was a fairly rational, fairly introspective person. I almost get the feeling that if he had lived 10 years longer, it might have ended up being a personal crisis for him. If you know what I mean, I, yeah, I feel like he I took that so. to, I feel like he took that to the brink, uh, I guess is what I'm getting at. You couldn't have gone much further than Newton did without realizing that one of one or the without other of these at some point. Yeah, needs needs to be wrong. Yeah. I mean, Newton, some of his work with optics wasn't just the behavior of light, but it was actually on the difference between sensation and perception, right? Like the idea he 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 performed experiments on himself to prove that the uh the eye contained a lens. And if the eye contains a lens, that means that our own body is warping, shifting. Yeah. The, the light that's coming into reality. it yep. and that means that by definition there's a filter between us and the real world and that means that there is no direct observation everything goes through and, and you're getting into like modern psychology and yeah. neuroscience stuff with that right so like on the one hand there's this we know nothing don't even trust your own senses type thing mm -hmm. do the best you can with what you have but understand that it could still be tainted yeah and therein lies the necessity for repeatability and and uh, you know multiple attempts at experiments and the willingness to uh, admit that something has been proven false and yeah, things like that. Because on the other hand, checking all the stuff that we do know and yeah. how much more we could learn from it. Exactly, exactly. So I, I don't want to get too much deeper into the science stuff because the scientific revolution is a is a really interesting topic in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And so you know, I, let's let's not scoop too much of that material right now. Um, <laughs> But suffice it to say that one of the men that we think of as the uh, father of modern science um, was more alchemist than anything else. Yeah, may have driven alchemy to its death, but would have thought of himself as an alchemist. Yeah. 
1720, there's the first public mainstream distinction between the fields of chemistry and alchemy. Public. Widespread, not just in Robert Boyle's kind of niche Uh. books on chemistry by the Royal Society. At this point, they start distinguishing between the two, and there's a pretty clear bias towards which one they think is worth their time. Mm. Alchemy, by definition, is basically restricted to the pursuit of gold physically mm-hmm. and then philosophically hermetic theory okay. which is increasingly looked down upon in the same way that other classical thinkers are looked down upon once you get into the 18th century we're really looking at what gets referred to as the age of reason uh fairly often and in a lot of ways it swings a little bit too hard that way okay you know, this is this is the this is the line of thinking that gets us to ten month years and hundred minute clocks in yeah. the after the French Revolution, right? This rejection of uh, anything traditional and and a and a an embrace of everything reason. Um, yeah, but you know, the new doesn't always mean improved. Well, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Not to say that I'm, you know, I, I'm not trying to say that the entire scientific revolution was a huge mistake. No, that's, that's not what I'm getting no, at. Of but course not. there's there is there is absolutely a rejection of certain aspects of tradition that maybe didn't need to go along yeah, with it sounds like, like there are theory. a lot of uh changes for the sake of change well i mean just another great example is the reaction of the french government after the revolution to uh to the church i mean some of the things that they did were absolutely warranted in terms of you know the amount of land owned by the church and the exploitation oh, yeah. of tithes and things like that ending that stuff sure executing priests outright just because they were priests i don't know guys maybe <laughs> maybe cool your heels hey, on that listen, one a little bit. <laughs> take it down <laughs> might be a touch too far guys Ooh. yeah it, it got it got buck wild after that revolution man i like whatever you can say history got buck wild i mean there's not a lot of points in history where it didn't get buck wild well that's a fair point too one of the things that gets stripped away to some extent along with all of that tradition is the secrecy aspect of hermetic theory we don't see everything we don't get our hands on every piece of alchemic knowledge there are experiments that aren't replicated until decades later by traditional chemists okay. uh, that were that we discover later were found by alchemists and didn't you know make it out Never to light published or anything yeah, yeah they were they were kind of rediscovered if you will by by you know, proper scientists <laughs> but people studying this stuff no longer felt the need to hide behind the shroud of, of secrecy because they didn't really think of themselves as alchemists anymore they didn't they see themselves as participating in the great work anymore yeah. they weren't this wasn't a noble calling to them anymore this wasn't a vocation any study of alchemical materials was most likely academic Mm -hmm. and if not in a historical perspective then in a in an attempt to further traditional chemical knowledge method of broad experimentation Mm -hmm. yeah you know people have done work before us some of it might be valuable let's see what we can strip mine out of it yeah sure between this age of reason rejection of hermetic theory and the promotion of of rational science the image of, of the charlatan that was, you know, in a lot of ways put forward by the church trying to stamp out heresy and by governments trying to mm-hmm. basically end counterfeiting. But that was that was the last that was the last public uh, conception of alchemy that existed while they were alchemists. Anyone who was still trying to complete the great work had to be full of it. Like we've we've won, like you know, chemistry is one. Like, what do you think you're doing? We know you're wrong. And you couldn't possibly believe something that's that wrong, so you must be trying to get rich off of it, right? Right. There are a lot of points in time after the 18th century yeah, where you see where you see a resurgence. Yeah. But that kind of goes along with this other 
thing that happens in the 19th century which is this like romanticism right like this this resurgence this, this oh, reaction against the age of reason mm. where it's like you know some some things just can't be explained by science some things are just too uh, you know they they, they need poetry they need art yeah. they need tradition and out of that emerges uh characters like alistair crowley for example who okay. uh have been inducted into these societies that have just barely survived through the age of reason with a little bit of hermetic knowledge usually with uh massive twists on it um specifically he was part of one called the order of the golden dawn mm -hmm. yeah there's this there's this uh movement that kind of feeds directly into modern new age movements basically that I see. a lot of times they're going back to pieces of hermetic knowledge and and uh, taking bits and pieces and combining it with Kabbalah or combining Pianism. it with, uh, uh, you know, what's, what little is left of, of Celtic knowledge or uh, Celtic tradition mm -hmm. or classical Greek mythology, things like that. And these charismatic figures coming forward with their kind of own twist on hermetic knowledge, but usually fairly deeply rooted in hermeticism. Okay. But again, these are just little blips that pop up every once in a while. And, and often they're seen by you know a minority of the population is very engaging and the majority of the population as something between a, a, a scam and a, a hate to use the word cult but you know mm. that's often the reputation that they end up getting whether or not that's fair is a different discussion but yeah so some of them are a little more interested in your money than others yeah, let's sure. put it that let's way put it that, yeah <laughs> and all your possessions well and and it's not just hermeticism that comes up in that point in time there's you know spirit mediums become massive again and interest right. in the fairy world becomes massive and all of that stuff you also get people like carl Jung, who is considered a father of psychology i know a lot of people who would try and disclude uh, you know disclude him from that that that, that distinction or that uh, that title who saw the magnum opus as a metaphor for the psychological growth of a person and incorporated uh, <laughs> uh, uh, alchemical themes into his 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 overall conception of human psychology. Remember, this is the guy who came up with the collective unconscious and the idea of archetypes and yeah. uh, the hero's journey and all of that stuff. But so so you know his relationship to modern psychology is tenuous at best. Yeah. Um, mm. But I mean. People know Carl Jung and they don't think of him as an alchemist. Let's put it that way. Fair. Okay. It's worth bringing up. These ideas of a universe that makes sense and a relationship between the physical and the spiritual and even a, a fallen world, but a fallen world with a chance of redemption mm -hmm. are attractive. Yeah. I, I don't think there's any point denying that. Um, well, it's nice to have that taxonomy. <laughs> sure. And, and and that's really what it comes down to is, is, is this set of ideas, this, 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 lexicon that you can use to express these over and over in different iterations yeah. but in ways that best you know reflect you personally as, as granular as you like mm -hmm. and am i surprised that alchemical thought comes back up every once in a while not in the least no but this ending is going to end up being very similar to our our astronomy one which is kind of fizzles off a little bit yeah i don't have like a it, this isn't this isn't like knights templar style where like and one day the pope sent out a missive that ended. killed killed all the alchemists no that doesn't happen <laughs> They, they they burn themselves out, right? Yeah. Like the, it, it goes away. It, it Their time passed and in a very organic fashion, which is that their ideas led to their own demise. And really the only alchemy that we're left with is ironically on one hand, philosophical, the, the you know, religious or spiritual aspects of it. Yeah. And the most clinical scientific aspects of it. Yeah. Um, without that connection in between, which was always the heart of alchemy. <laughs> yeah. That was what mattered about alchemy was right. that interplay between that the physical the and spiritual. 
Yeah, that they, exactly. That they were the same, that they affected each other one-to-one that directly. there was no distinction. <laughs> and so, you know what? Yeah, you have particle colliders that can literally change elements into other elements. Yeah, I was going to say, and, you've got heavy stars that can fuse iron into gold. <laughs> and, and absolutely, when that happens, there are headlines, and it's because of these alchemical ideas, right? Yeah. Look at this. We turned one element into another. We're the modern-day alchemists. Yeah. But you're not really, because alchemy isn't about... Yeah. transmutation of metals and alchemy isn't about just this uh this this spiritual idea of the stars having an as- uh, 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 an effect on our lives or the ability to communicate with spirits alchemy is a synthesis of all of those things and an interplay between all of those things and mm. a, a conception that what you do in one arena matters so much in the other arena that you should pay t- careful attention to both to create your best self basically your best reality the best reality yeah for everyone and that that middle bit just got stripped right out oh yeah and it's obliterated it's not coming back really i don't i don't, don't think don't that part can it'd have to be a pretty big scientific revolution to bring that back yeah yeah well and and we'd have to we have to be proven wrong on a lot of stuff that oh yeah i don't see changing anytime soon no so yeah i don't have a solid ending other than kind of taking it back to first concepts like that and, and pointing out that no the the guys who slammed a bunch of hydrogen particles together and and managed to create helium that's that's cool don't get me wrong that's yeah, awesome but sure. that's not alchemy it's not wizardry <laughs> that's not alchemy and and you know the the people who are who are talking about a, a divine connection between all all beings and and there's this greek concept that i didn't really get into it's known as the the earth soul the, the soul of the earth, this okay. idea that all living beings on earth, it's basically the force. The but, life stream. Uh, <laughs> but all living beings on earth are connected uh-huh. through the virtue of being alive. Because remember, in alchemy, yeah. life is that connection it between is. physical and spiritual. Yeah, it's that thing is, you can't explain. Yeah. It's it's not it's not spirits and it's not rocks. It's something in between. It's life a, it's is a, a marriage of both. object that is the opposite of death. <laughs> yeah. But by extension, all life is, is attracted to each other and is connected to each other. And mm-hmm. In that same way, all life becomes the soul of the planet Earth in the same way that our soul is the soul of the body, where without that soul, you still have a physical thing, but it's not the same thing. Right. In 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 the in the Earth soul conception, the Earth would still exist without life on it, but it wouldn't be the there Earth. No. <laughs> right? And so yeah, like those those ideas, stuff like that crops up all the time in different philosophies and different um they all get lumped in under you know new age beliefs but I was gonna say, well, uh... <laughs> sure yeah yeah absolutely and 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 some of them are extremely thoughtful and, and and resonate with a lot of people but you know they're they're not trying to complete the great work not in no, a no. not in a physical sense and 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 that's if, if anything that might be where there's there's the last vestiges of, of alchemy, alchemic thought but it's it's not what it once was it's no. not the same so yeah these ideas exist separately but uh Mm-hmm. because of that and that's why when we started out this topic i told you very explicitly that we're not going to separate out those two things oh no because i think to do so it's fundamentally not alchemy at oh that sure point. and that's why that first segment where you know as a modern 21st century man i had a difficult time wrapping my head around <laughs> yeah it's tough stuff but i think ultimately ends up being worth it in terms of not only our understanding of alchemy but our understanding of basically any science pre-1700 or so yeah because you can't talk about that stuff without alchemy Mm -hmm. it's all done in that framework and you can't understand that framework without understanding all of alchemy yeah it was interesting as we went along the thousands of years to be like oh okay here's the separate parts that i recognize (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
Uh, yeah, and and there there were there were things that I I did not expect to come into this topic that you know I'm I'm doing research and it's like oh, wow we're going to be talking a lot about you know well Paracelsus for example yeah. you know I've only ever come across him in a medical context yeah heard of the guy but not as an alchemist well sure and I mean and in context it made perfect sense yeah definitely and and it, it explains a lot of his ideas that seemingly came out of nowhere they didn't come out of nowhere they came out of a thousands of years long tradition philosophy yeah applied to one field so that's alchemy yep any final thoughts or questions or i know i throw a lot at you there i just had one question that just popped into my head a couple minutes ago and swinging back like to probably an hour ago let's do it um you were saying that you know these alchemists uh, kind of went to life of being hermits basically does that come from hermes that word yeah okay that's it that's all i want to know <laughs> yes it does okay. glad i could clear that up all right well uh thanks so much for coming on today it's uh, a really good topic to do i really enjoyed doing this absolutely one. uh and i it helped me come up with probably my next two topics <laughs> amazing i can't wait to hear them <laughs> The scientific revolution may have eliminated alchemy as a serious discipline, but a holistic picture of alchemy is essential to a deeper understanding of most scientific fields of the past 2,000 years. It explains and unites some of the strangest and longest standing aspects of medicine, astronomy, philosophy, and more. Next time on HI 101, we'll be talking about that surge of Victorian occultism we alluded to at the end of this episode. That'll be up December 1st. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.